On this week's episode, we do a Q&A with property finance solicitor Ed Zanimer. We talk about steps to take to get a job as a lawyer, title issues, and much more. Now it's time to spend 30 minutes in finance. All right. Thanks for coming on again, Ed. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this uh, Q&A with us. Um, We've got around about 10 questions or so uh, from the audience uh, that listened last time. Um, And we kind of just want to run through them, get your opinion, um, and we'll go from there. So shall we kick off with the first question, um, which is, how long does it actually take to become a solicitor? Or how long did it actually take you, rather, specifically to become a solicitor? Thanks, David. First of all, thank you uh, very much for having me again. Um, So, yeah, so for me personally... um, I I have a first degree, uh, not in law, um, and therefore the process for me was that I needed to do a uh, law conversion course um, called uh, the Graduate Diploma in Law, um, which was one year, followed by a second year of study. This is this is full time study. So you have your law your your non law degree, then uh, GDL Graduate Diploma in Law followed by the LPC. Um, so that would have been five years so far on my on my route. And then two years once in a law firm on a training contract. So that's three and two is five. And another two is, is seven years. Um, however, what I would say, there's two, there's two caveats to that. Firstly, if you are someone who has done a first degree in law, then you do not need to do the graduate diploma in law. Um, so you would have done three years as a first degree in law, uh, followed by one year full-time study, or it can be part-time, but let's say you do it full-time, one year full-time study LPC, and then two years training contract. So that would be um, six years for those people who've got a first degree in law. Uh, beyond that, what I'd say is now that describes, and this is sort of like a you know a headline newsflash, that describes the previous system so i would urge people who are looking now into qualifying um, to check out all of the details um, which are available on the law society website because the qualification system has changed um, and there's a new route to qualifying um, called the solicitors qualifying examination um, so what that means is that system applies i think it's since autumn 2021 um, and that's a whole new system or route to qualification. So, um, unfortunately, uh, because it hasn't impacted me directly, I don't know exactly how that works. It's very uh, or fairly new, um, and people would need to look into that. No, that's perfect. And obviously, it's quite a long time. It's that's uh, the same as being a doctor, isn't it? And what qualification do you actually end up with once you've done that? Is it the equivalent of a master's or a PhD, or is that not really how it works well so that what what i just described was you'd end up uh as a qualified solicitor um now en route to that when you have done your law degree or your law degree sorry or your non-law degree followed by the graduate diploma in law you will be uh llb ons in law uh basically so uh, you will be uh, yeah, a degree holder um, 
basically, and that is the qualification that you would have. Now, obviously, though, you know, if if you stop after you've got your law degree, whilst you'll have that in inverted commas qualification, you won't be a qualified solicitor. I mean, that's a very important differentiation to make as well. So there's the academic aspect of it. I mean, this is going by the old system. I have to hasten to add again. So, you know, on, on the old system, which, which I went through, you have your law degree or your non-law degree followed by the graduate diploma in law, um, and then you do the L LPC. Um, so, you know, but unless or until you actually have a training contract um, at a law firm and you've gone through that and, uh, you know, passed the requisite details for that, you won't be a qualified solicitor. So there's very much, or there was, pursuant to the old system, a, a, a two-tiered uh, process that you need to go through academic and then practical until you're actually qualified as a solicitor okay perfect and i think obviously spending a lot of time in the sort of studying um and in education you you would expect um and i think a lot of people do expect the rewards for that to be relatively sort of okay and that leads us kind of nicely on to to the next question which is what are the potential sort of earnings for a, a solicitor um and be sort of that can be if you could walk us through the sort of rough stages as in right when you join um sort of roughly obviously don't need to give specifics um all the way to let's say partner level if you have any knowledge of that yeah i think well i think uh what i would say is, is that there's a there's a there's a massive um divergence of what that can mean for different people um, and different firms so what i mean by that is if you were to train and qualify at for example a magic circle firm such as clifford chance um, what you would be earning as a trainee and a newly qualified solicitor would be vastly different than what you would be earning um, as a trainee and newly qualified solicitor at, for example, you know, um, X and Y partners in some uh, town or provincial city or area in the UK. Um, that's not to say one is better than the other or anything like that, but there's a very vast reality gap in terms of the earning potential between those two different types of firm. So, you know, it's 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 really a, almost how long is a piece of string uh, question. Um, you know, so the ballpark figure, I guess, for for a trainee, and I, I won't give specific numbers because I'm not sure exactly what they are, but I would I would guesstimate that you know a trainee at um, Clifford Chance um, is possibly earning at least double, if not more, perhaps than a trainee at a small firm um elsewhere in the uk um so it is a, it is a, it is a difficult question to answer and what i would say is that you know um and this might be going slightly off piste and things we're going to cover in the next questions that you know what i would say is though that you know law i think still represents a solid career choice for certain um and the earning potential um whatever area of law you're in is is reasonable um, and, you know, there is a certain cachet still, I think, and a certain um, certainty as to future qualification or as certain as one can be in any profession or line of work these days. 
However, I think um, the days when all lawyers necessarily are uh, very well off um, has gone. Uh, I think that's something that I would point out as well. So I think that people should be you know, looking very carefully into um, you know, what their expectations are and making sure that they're aware of you know, the ranges of what it can mean uh, to become a solicitor or a lawyer um, and the earning potential and that being subject, as I say, very much to the, the size, profile and type of firm and type of law that you're going to end up practicing. Okay, yes, again, this uh, very, very neatly, it's as though this was planned, but it definitely wasn't, leads us to the next question. And if you want to go to one of those bigger law firms, for example, um, or succeed as a solicitor full stop, what are the sort of skills that they're actually looking for um, from you an individual, assuming obviously everyone's got the same sort of uh, grade when it comes to their degree or, or whatever, um, or their diploma? What are they actually after? What what would you look for um, in a sort of a new hire just to yeah. see if they'd be any good at, at, at actually being a solicitor? Well, I, I think as, you, you, as you've alluded to, I think the, the, the first step or the prerequisite um, is uh, academics. And I will mention that because, you know, that I think any firm that's looking to take someone on as a trainee will have a high expectation as to that person's academic achievements, certainly at A level and certainly at degree level. And so that's kind of a given. And, you know, and then building on that as well, I think it's a given that you have to have certain skill sets. So, you know, attention to detail, uh, good communication skills, good written skills, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think uh, above and beyond that, you know, it's a very well. What it's, it's 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 exceptionally competitive to become a trainee to get a training contract in any sort of firm. Um, I, I would I would hasten to add that. And you know, my personal experience, um, as you're aware, David, and I don't know if the, if the listeners are aware or not, but I did qualify later in life. Um, and I was at law school. I just uh, this is uh, you know kind of a, a bit of a di a divergence, but uh, I was at law school with some, with some very bright and intellectually very good. Um, friends, colleagues, whatever you want to call them, students, and, you know, with excellent academics, um, but who never were able, unfortunately, um, to secure training contracts, because it is very, very competitive. Um, and those people, my experience, have, have gone off a lot of them to do to do other things as a result, um, and, uh, you know, haven't gone down the route of ever becoming a solicitor. Um, so what I'd say is, you know, you really need, and I think as a as a as a person who's hiring, um, looking at you know the plethora of applications that they that they are receiving, um, you know you're looking for things that are that are standing out. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, yeah, and again, it's it's not something that I've looked at very recently, but I know intuitively, and from my experience as well, I have to say, as a uh, a previous uh, career recruiter prior to my law um, degree and qualification and career, I was in recruitment. Um, so I think what, what, I, what I think people are looking for is that little bit extra, that little bit above and beyond, you know, achievement wise, whether it's things like the Duke of Edinburgh awards, whether it's things like excellence in sports, whether it's things like achievement in, um, you know, charitable pursuits, whether it's uh, um, music, 
or whether it's uh, theatre or whatever it is, just something that, um, you know, shows people that you are someone who is able to stand out um, and push yourself um, to get the most out of your own capabilities and to, and to take your abilities and, and to really fly um, in, in a competitive environment. Because that's what I think law requires. I think be above and beyond, you know, the, the, the basic skill sets and the ability to, you know, to do the work, um, you know, it, it does require a certain bit of um, something extra or at least to get your foot in the door does anyway. Um, and there's no doubt about that. Um, and that is, I think, what um, what firms are looking for when they're hiring. I would also add to that, and this is something, again, from my recruitment days and also from my experience of, um, you know, talking to friends when I, when I was at law school, you know, the people who were successful in getting training contracts realised that they needed to make their applications focused and targeted. So, for example, you know, if you're, if you're someone who, who wants to become um, a sports lawyer and you've got, uh, you know, excellence in sport and, and, and you've achieved a lot in sport and you've got knowledge in sport, then apply to those sorts of law firms and make your case out as to your passion and interest in that particular area. Um, because that's the sort of thing that I think hiring uh, managers look for. And that goes across the board. You know, all sorts of law firms, whatever firm they are, wherever they are, will have a focus. They will have a, a culture and they will be looking for people who, have, who are passionate about the work that they do and who are likely to fit into to, to that culture that that law firm represents. And I think that's very important. So make your applications, make your approaches sensible and targeted. Um, rather than a, you know, a shotgun approach or a scattergun approach whereby you are uh, applying to 100 law firms um, but not really making those applications focused. That's how I would advise someone to go about it. Yeah, and when it comes to the, the colleagues that you're talking about or the, the fellow students that didn't manage to get a place, was it just that specific thing that like they had nothing in particular that made them sort of stand out then? from the crowd they were kind of just academic and, and that was it or was there something else that they were lacking in terms of a certain personality trait or anything of that kind of nature um i don't i don't i, I think that's uh I, I wouldn't like to be so definitive in answering that i, I think there you know as with all things in 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 life often there is there is an element of of luck involved um but at the same time, and then I'm sort of throwing out, um, you know, uh, uh, whatever the word is, sort of catchphrases here, you know, people make their own luck um, to a certain extent. And I, and I think you have to believe in yourself. Um, so I think belief, resilience um, and, 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 and passion. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the, the interviewing process is very rigorous the application progress is very rigorous. You know, make your application stand out on paper. If you're in an interview, be passionate, uh, communicate, and, and, and make your answers resonate with the person who is, uh, who is interviewing you. I wouldn't like to say above and beyond that, you know, why certain people didn't get there. You know, people are lucky, people are unlucky, but people do make their own luck. You know, it, it is one of those... It is one of those things, but it is exceptionally competitive. Um, and I do think, 
you know, having said all of that, you know, I do know people um, who, you know, who didn't get a training contract for many years and went into firms paralegaling or whatever else and stuck with it and, uh, you know, have now maybe five years after finishing or even longer after finishing their academic part of the process, gone on to secure uh, a training contract. Again, I would, I would just um, reiterate what I said earlier as to the new route to qualification, um, which uh, is something that I'm not overly familiar with. And I would, uh, you know, uh, uh, stress again to people that they should check out exactly how that works. Sorry, sorry that I haven't got chapter and verse on that new process at the moment. Don't you worry, we'll forgive you. And then, um, so in the day-to-day -day side of things, um, you'd say that as in once you're actually got a position it's pretty much that sort of eye for detail um is that kind of the major thing and the ability to sort of uh shift through is there a lot of information that you need to go through or how does that work and this actually i'll ask you the, the next question because it again fits in very nicely to that is um the one of our, our listeners did say that they've always been interested in becoming a solicitor but they're not a very quick reader. Um, so obviously going through pages and pages of documents, how would that affect or impact them? Um, and is that something that you think is a, a prerequisite? Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say necessarily that you, you need to be a quick reader. I think if you're someone who has managed to get, you know, the the right level of uh, academic uh, qualification and results, you know, good A-level results, a 2-1 degree, maybe a 2-2 degree in some circumstances um, or higher, then you're likely to be able to read quickly enough to deal with what's required once you're a trainee at a law firm. You know, I, and I think there's very much a balance because, I mean, you've, you've mentioned attention to detail, as have I. Um, you know, a, a quick reader um, may not be someone who is taking in everything that they need to. So I think it's, yeah, it's an ability to, um, to get things done within, within reasonable timeframes. Um, you know, if you are someone, however, who has gone on, as I said, to, to, to have... Uh, got a good degree then I suspect you're going to be able to read uh, quickly enough um, yeah does that answer that yeah, question no, that, that's perfect yeah because it it is one of those things I think that somebody's slow reading might be very different as well to, to some others so I know I'm not the, the quickest um, but that you know that's compared to what I guess really um, yeah. so if you're you're right if you've got that far you're probably good enough and that's yeah. the the key um moving on to, to the next one just because I'm, I'm conscious obviously we've got quite a, a few to go through um right. these are from now on they're more sort of property related um as opposed to the job in itself um and the first one that we've got through is what happens when you pull out of a property deal after exchanging contracts Okay, um, so it really well. It depends who you who you are um, in that scenario. Assuming, whether you're the buyer, I, I think this is assuming that you're the buyer. Okay, 
Well, if you're if you are the buyer, um, and you don't complete, you will lose uh, your deposit, or there's a risk of losing your deposit. So at exchange, i.e., when when the contract is is entered into, you would have paid a deposit. Um, if you don't make the completion as a buyer, you will uh, lose your deposit, and you could also risk being uh, being sued. So the the seller um may serve a notice to complete on you as the buyer if you fail to complete um and that can be served um uh by by the seller basically uh and and you will then um if you don't then uh complete after the notice to serve uh, to complete has been served um within within a 10 day period then the the seller can effectively rescind the contract um, and walk away with your deposit. Oh wow! Yeah, and potentially further costs and interest, etc. And what happens the other way around if the the vendor tries to pull out? So if the, if the seller fails to complete, um, you know the, the the buyer can effectively revoke the contract and. Um, the deposit will be returned to the buyer, uh, potentially with interest as well, um, and the seller um, is likely to be liable to pay for any outstanding fees from the contract, etc. Uh, so, yeah, I mean that that can happen as well. Yeah. So there's no way to force the the sort of purchase or anything like that from the the buyer's side, is there? No, the buyer takes uh, uh, the decision, or out of necessity, um, decide. Well, they, they, uh, in putting out, basically, the buyer, the buyer risks losing their deposit. That that is the that is the um, uh, you know that is the trump that the uh, the trump that the seller can play. Um, yeah, and in, then the other way around, though, the buyer can't force the the seller to sell. Um, can they from no, no matter what they, it, if they pull out that's the property off the market they've got no way of of getting that even via suing or anything i'm guessing <laughs> no exactly exactly yeah, yeah. Now, that that seems fair enough to me because otherwise that would be quite harsh um there doesn't <clears throat> seem it seems fairly heavily weighted on the uh, sort of the seller's side of things is that to uh, do you know if that's any particular reason to that? As in the deposit on the line generally is say 10% or so. That's quite a, a reasonable risk for the buyer. Um, and then just covering cost for the seller if they pull out isn't really that, you know, that awful by comparison. Uh, so yeah, it seems, but you know, I, I guess that what else could you do really? Yes, no, it's the, it's, it's the buyer who is who is at risk of losing the deposit? Um, so yeah, I mean, in that regard, uh, they are able or to be to be more heavily uh, penalised. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that is perfect. And then um, our next question: um, they, This person must have had some issues buying some property or selling a property uh, but it says why does it take so long to complete property purchases in the uk and does it need to be as complicated as it is um and from our experience obviously as a bridging yeah. lender um, and you acting for us as our solicitor 
occasionally things do take a, a, a reasonable amount of time. Um, so, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? So why, why does it take so long? Yeah, and why is it so complicated? Or it maybe appears so complicated to the, the well, uninitiated. Um, yeah, I, I, think, initiated. <laughs> I think the reason it takes so long is that the conveyancing process is um, designed to make sure that both parties are, uh, are protected in, in sort of very broad terms. Um, you know, so therefore the the various parties have to go through um you know in-depth legal due diligence to make sure that um no no issues that uh, could come back further down the line to bite either um you know are left unturned um i, I guess i guess that though you know sometimes i would say it doesn't take so long and sometimes it can be relatively uh relatively quick um you know it often takes so long though because either one of the parties um decides that it should um for a variety of reasons so for example you know they may the parties exchange on day one and then for a variety of reasons either one of them may decide that they don't want to complete for you know a period of a month or or six months uh down the line whether that's related to um you know a secondary further transaction they might be the seller might not be able to complete their purchase for a period of time so there's often a chain involved i guess is what i'm saying so you know because there's a chain involved um not everyone in the chain is able always to um have the same time scales in mind so you know that necessitates often the deal uh, taking longer. Um, I think in terms of the complexity, as I've said, really, um, the reason is that, you know, people want to be sure that they've been advised and um, that there's nothing that is, uh, you know, left unturned. So, um, you know, there's a whole series of um, uh, aspects that the advising solicitors look into from the legal side of things, um, from the uh, title to the property, to the searches, etc. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, there's also surveyors are involved. Um, you know, let's say, for example, you're looking to buy a property and you have a survey done, which you would uh, potentially do on your own volition or your lender may require it. Um, and that unearths an issue um, that requires further investigation or further reports or further specialist surveys, you know, or remediation work. So, you know, there's a whole there's a whole range of reasons for why it may take so long and why it is, uh, you know, potentially so complicated. Um, you know, however, in a chain free transaction, um, if you're lucky, you know, the whole deal could could complete within, you know, uh, a month. So I think I think it's, uh, again, a little bit of a of a of a range of um, issues that come into play. Um, but. I think uh, on the positive side, having gone through all of that, you know, a party, seller and buyer, either should be satisfied. One of the things that the, the kind of the interesting bit, obviously, about the whole sort of the UK, well, it, it's obviously different in, in Scotland. Um, 
which we, we sort of that's you know that's not something that I don't think you deal with um, but it seems to be because we've got or I've got experience purchasing property overseas um, and that was say way easier uh, was is an understatement um, and I think that the the sort of the complexities of all the different bodies obviously working together like you said the land registry the sort of the local councils the searches all of that sort of stuff um there seems to be far more things that can potentially go wrong and do you think that is because of you know how old uh, the sort of system is in terms of obviously there's some really historic things of certain properties um and we'll, we'll get to one of those questions a little later uh where there's things on the title that maybe are related to things that you know maybe don't apply anymore or but they're, they're still there so they've all got to be checked and gone through um is that does that impact things at all well i i, I do think that there is a obviously our jurisdiction is uh, england and wales and you know there there is a law society conveyancing protocol i guess which is always being updated um and that does lay out assuming that the firms involved follow the protocol and um, which they you know invariably will do and that's a step-by-step -step process when acting for either a, a seller or a purchaser of residential property um so you know it does kind of standardize the process um and as i said it's designed to make things um transparent and efficient so that both parties can come away afterwards knowing that they've been through the protocol process and therefore there's unlikely to have been anything that's been missed um you know and it's it's designed i guess to improve um the experience or the uh the process for everyone involved so i guess that's the solicitors the clients and also lenders clearly obviously as well right so um you know it, it that that may be the background or the reason as to why so it is kind of a a well-established um old uh process if you if you like um so i guess you know it may be that it's in distinction from what happens or i know as you do as well and as you've said what happens in other countries or other jurisdictions. Um, so I guess, um, you know, the downside may be uh, time and complexity, but on the upside, um, I think that, you know, our system does mean that you can come away, whatever party you are in the transaction, knowing that it's been fairly rigorous and you're unlikely to have missed something i mean one shouldn't stereotype but you know one hears about all sorts of horror stories in other jurisdictions about uh, property purchases um yeah, those happen here as well but um are perhaps less so so you know i think um yeah you have to take the rough with the smooth i guess is what i'm saying <laughs> yeah and that, that is it's kind of our next question is relates to the the title um, that we we're just talking about and they're, they're asking what are sort of common things that people should maybe look out on the title of properties that they are looking to purchase are there any kind of 
telltale signs of this will be trouble. Um, maybe just a couple of examples, if you can think of any that are uh, sort of red flags. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, I'm not sure how many people themselves prior to uh, instructing solicitors will have looked at the title itself to a property. So that's um, true. Let's assume, yeah. <laughs> let's assume they do just in case, or maybe okay. they're getting the report and title from the solicitor, um, which is the, the title that's produced at the end of all the legal convincing work so that people can kind of get an, an overview of, of that property title. If there's something on there, are there a few things that maybe that they should be aware of that hold more sway than maybe most people sort of think or, or anything like that? Yeah, OK, well, I, I think one needs to differentiate and I don't want to get too technical here between the, the title to the property, um, as in the land registry title to the property and a report on title, which is more broad and includes, you know, a review or a report on other aspects such as, um, you know, planning, searches, etc. So if you're looking at the pure title to a property, for example, let's say you're yeah. buying a property and you wanted to carry out works to that property um, and you knew that you were doing that, and you looked at the title to the property, and I'm talking about the title here, as in the land registry title to the property. And on that, there were restrictive covenants in favour of a third party, for example, which said, you know, no works to be carried out um, without consent in writing of a third party who has the benefit of a restrictive covenant. Now, you know, that might necessarily uh, cause an issue because that person um, may not uh, consent to the work that you want to carry out to so the property that you're about to buy in, in extending it or whatever else. Um, yeah, that doesn't mean all bets are off. Um, you could either, um, you know, seek the person with the benefit of that uh, covenant now and uh, request their consent or more usually, you know, perhaps, um, you know, uh, pursue an indemnity to cover any risk um, which your solicitor would do on your behalf. Um, but that might be a red flag that you might look at, you know, subject or, or be, uh, you know, concerned about subject to what you want to do with the property once you've, uh, once you've bought it. More generally, um, obviously, as you'll be aware, and as I'm sure the listeners are aware, solicitors are likely to have um, purchased uh, searches on your behalf in respect of the property. Um, and that might uh, raise um, other concerns. For example, um, you know, this would be a very big red flag. Let's say um, the environmental search, um, which you had uh, commissioned, um, came back with a flag saying that the property may or is built on land which may be in some way contaminated um, or contaminated land. Now, uh, there may be a reason for that, which may be easy to get round um, based on further information that could be submitted to the search provider, but it could be a reality that the, that the land is contaminated um, and that, uh, you know, 
uh, remedial work needs to be done to it um, to get round that contamination. So that would be a red flag. Um, and all of this as well, um, bear in mind that you may be buying with the benefit of uh, a mortgage from a lender, would be things that certainly the lender would want to be satisfied on as well. Um, so it's double pronged really. Your solicitor will have to advise you um, as to yourself and any concerns that come up. And also, um, you know, we'll need to advise um, the, the lender who's providing the funding as well um, as to these uh, potential concerns that come up. So, you know, there are things that uh, you'd want to be aware of or uh, concerned about. Um, but hopefully, again, it depends what the asset is or what the property is that you're buying. Um, if you're buying an established residential property, a house, etc., cetera, um, you know, there are less likely to be issues um, that come up. Um, but there can be. I mean, let's say, for example, um, just one further example, uh, the, the house, let's say it's a house you're buying. Let's say it was a newly built house in development that was built two or three years ago, um, or, or you're buying it brand new, um, and there is no what one would call um, structural warranty from a new build warranty provider, um, you know, which there should be um, basically warranting that the house is in good structural order for a period usually of 10 years. Um, let's say that none of that was in place. That would be a red flag. Um, and, you know, you would be very unlikely to be able to get uh, funding from a mainstream lender if that was the case. And you would also have concerns because, you know, you'd want to know that the house was safe and ready to be lived in. And also, um, if you wanted to sell that house within a period of, say, 10 years, then the incoming buyer would expect to benefit from the residuary of the uh, cover under that structural warranty for you know the further the further 10 years so you know you wouldn't want to buy a house basically a new built house um, which didn't have some form of structural warranty or alternatively um what one would call a professional consultant certificate from a um, from an architect in a in a standard form which kind of can sit in in lieu of such a structural warranty um, so there are things that are, you know, are red flags that do come up occasionally. No, that that's perfect. And you kind of covered our next question a little bit, um, which is what is the importance of the local search and when would you suggest it isn't needed, if at all it ever isn't needed? Um, well, I, 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 yeah, I would suggest that... Um, it's never not needed. Uh, you know, if you don't have a local search, um, then you should certainly look to get an indemnity for the lack of a local search. Um, again, you won't be able to get, in my experience, um, a mortgage from any bank or lender of any sort without either a local search or, or an indemnity for a lack of a local search. Um, the import, did you say what's the importance of the local search? Uh, yeah, what is, yeah, and why would, yeah, why basically uh, would you need one? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the local search, uh, you know, flags all sorts of, um, all sorts of things. So, you know, it will tell you, for example, whether or not uh, the property um, is accessed from a road which is adopted or otherwise. 
Um, you know, let's say you're buying number five Acacia Avenue, you'd want to know whether or not Acacia Avenue is a publicly adopted highway. If it isn't, um, what costs are, in, uh, are involved in contributing if it's a private road to the upkeep of Acacia Avenue? Um, if it's not adopted, do you have a legal right, in fact, to go up and down Acacia Avenue? Um, if it's not adopted, there needs to be some sort of right to benefit the property to confirm that you can, in fact, go up and down Acacia Avenue. It's a private road. You know, it may be owned by someone who, um, you know, may have the ability to stop you using Acacia Avenue. Stranger things have happened. Um, there may be uh, an issue that comes up on the local search to do with planning and in enforcement. So let's say um, you're buying a, uh, a flat uh, in a in a converted uh, house, former house or, 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 or building of some sort, whatever it may be, and there may not have been the requisite planning sign-off or planning permission for the current use of the property, the local authority may have um, put an enforcement notice on, on, on the property, which, you know, the local search will warn you about. So there's all sorts of things um, that you'd want to get a local search for. Um, and yeah, I don't think it's ever a good idea to proceed without one. Um, and certainly, as I say, if you're, if you're looking to get funding from any lender, uh, whether they're a mainstream lender or otherwise, you know, you, you'll need a local search or, or if not, an indemnity for a lack of one. That is perfect. And I think the one thing that a lot of people kind of um are aware of when it comes to buying a property especially uh, you know that everyone hears stories about and this is where i want to see if how true they really are is the chance of repair liability um what can you just sort of briefly explain what that is for everyone and then what are the actual risks associated with that um and have you ever actually come across an issue with it a chancel repair liability is a financial obligation um, which, which is imposed on some property owners um, and some properties to pay for repairs, I guess, to a certain church. And chancel is uh, effectively another name for a church. Um, yeah, uh, so... And, and, and there may be a chance of repair liability, which which falls on some properties, um, which are not the actual church itself, if that makes sense. So the liability um, attaches effectively to the land and can extend to properties situated uh, within, uh, I guess, a reasonable distance from an actual church. So, um, yeah, it can, it, if, if, it's, if there is such a liability, um, it can affect, uh, you know, one or multiple properties in an area. Um, and if there is such a liability, um, the homeowner um, would have to pay potentially um, a, an amount towards the upkeep of the relevant church. So what happened was, as I understand it, that there was a very famous case, I think it was the case of the Wallbanks, um, one word, W-A-L-L-B-A-N-K, 
case where the House of Lords found that the homeowners in that particular scenario were liable for multiple thousands towards the repair of the of the of the uh, of the particular church. So, you know, our advice is always um, and different solicitors take different views on this. Um, but our advice is that you should always carry out a chancel repair search um, so that you know whether or not there is a potential liability um, attaching to that particular property. If there is, um, what you would then do is you would take out an indemnity to cover the very remote risk that you are actually um, asked to contribute towards um, the chancel repair effectively. So, yeah, uh, you know, there, there was a change in 2013, um, which effectively meant that um, if the liability uh, were actually to be an overriding interest, uh, which meant it, it you know, continues to affect a property, it had to be registered at the land registry um, and stated on the title as a potential liability to homeowners. And certainly if you see that, um, then you'd want to look into getting an indemnity. But our advice is even if, um, you know, the title is, uh, you know, uh, apparently clear of any such liability, we would still recommend that you would... Uh, that you should get a search um, effectively to see whether or not there is any uh, potential liability. So, you know, I've never come across it um, whereby anyone's actually been uh, made to pay a contribution uh, towards any such liability. Final question we've got here is more about doing the, the sort of the body that um, regulates the solicitors, which is the SRA. Um, obviously, in the financial sort of sector, we've got the FCA that sort of overviews everyone um, and make sure, or and the PRA, um, to make sure people are uh, sort of following the rules, essentially, and, and playing sort of with a, a straight bat. Um, is that a similar sort of role to the SRA? And, and or what do they actually do? And do you have much involvement with them sort of on a day to day? Yeah, actually, it's the Solicitors Regulation Authority. I should um, just correct that, um, my my error there. So, yeah, I mean, yes, I, I think that's a good a good analogy or comparison um, that, as in with the uh, the FCA. Yes, so similar similar to the FCA, the SRA are the uh, regulator. Again, um, it's um, the jurisdiction comes into this so the regulator of solicitors and law firms in england and wales um and their 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 role is really to protect i guess members of is to is to protect the public really um so that you know uh they the 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 public um are protected from you know uh, for want of a better description uh mal or poor practice by by solicitors effectively um so uh that is what they do 
Um, and yeah, they're very similar in that regard to the um, to the FCA, but for the legal profession. Um, and and yeah, they they ensure effectively, therefore, that solicitors meet high standards. Um, and uh, you know, they should act to protect the public if and when any risks are identified. So, you know, as a solicitor, we have to be aware of the effective, uh, what it's called, you know, the, the code of conduct for, for solicitors um, and, and abide by that. Um, we don't, I guess, have regular or day-to-day -day interaction with them, um, but they're there, um, you know, to, um, to fall back on if and when there's an issue that comes up, basically. Yeah, because earlier in this year, I actually saw that they'd taken action on a relatively large firm um, and sort of closed them down, which is, you know, it's always interesting to see when they actually do step in. Um, and I'm not too sure of the details, so I won't kind of mention who or what it was or why, because I don't know <laughs> that only that the fact that they, they were sort of forced to close. Um, yeah. And it, it's always interesting to see um, when things like that do happen because they're, they're kind of, you hear about firms all the time and the FCA, which is the Financial Conduct Authority, um, just being in the background, but you don't always see obviously what they're doing in the background. So it's just interesting to see that there actually are sort of doing things and, and protecting the, the, I guess, the end consumer and the the sort of the customers um yeah well you know so so you know i mean yeah they're, 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 as as a regulator as you'd expect um you know th there's a there's a there's a well the code of conduct as i alluded to already um which embodies i guess all sorts of uh, professional principles um which are laid down in it um you know all solicitors all firms um are obligated to to follow to follow the same uh, the same code of conduct effectively. So yeah, I mean, if uh, if there's uh, any uh, breach of that or a serious breach of that, then obviously the SRA can take action, including uh, you know closing down a particular firm if the if the breach of uh, the code of conduct is so uh, that it merits it basically. Um, but yeah, that that's what they do. So yeah, they are akin to. Um, the FCA, but for uh, you know the regulation of of the legal sector. Yeah, no, that is perfect, and, and thank you for that. And we, what we're trying to do now, as the sort of last thing, is we are actually asking our guests, um, as and when we know who the next guest is at the time of the recording, um, to ask our next guest a question. Um, oh. And we actually had a question from. Lewis uh, Cassidy from Albatross Capital um, for you in particular um, in relation to he knew you, was, you were coming on um, and he's asked he's asked how important is the role of the borrower's solicitor when it comes to property finance and lending? Well yeah I mean this is a question, David, that you and I will um, have close to our hearts, no doubt. The answer is very important. Um, the, 
the borrower's solicitor may or may not understand or be familiar with um, the rigor that a lender's solicitor will expect. It depends who they are, and one shouldn't generalize again, but you know, often the borrower's solicitor um, may be used to dealing with uh, conveyancing transactions, um, and it really depends though who the lender in question is. So, you know, if the borrower's solicitor is, is used to dealing with uh, conveyancing transactions where the lender is typically, um, you know, a, a high street lender, um, then, you know, that is one thing. If, however, um, the borrower's solicitor um, is not used to dealing with a, uh, a, a lender and their solicitor who uh, is not a high street lender, um, then, you know, that can cause um, potential issues. Uh, so the answer is very important. Um, and, uh, you know, um, that leads on to time impact and whatever else so what, what yeah does that answer the question yeah or, that, that or is perfect. yeah enough? absolutely yeah because he basically did just ask um sort of and what role do they play in helping the transaction which is is i guess their understanding because it is very different as you said a high street lenders requirements and the time frames they're expected to work to are very different to a bridger like Albatross Capital or like exactly. at FBSE. So, um, and I guess that the volume of work they do, um, yeah, it all sort of varies sort of drastically. So yeah, no, that nicely covers it and I appreciate that. And obviously I, I sprung that one on you without giving you a heads up, but I knew <laughs> I knew what the answer would be roughly as, as we all know it is, they are absolutely key to making the transactions happen yeah. um, uh so smoothly. I would say just, you know, there's there's an obligation, not an obligation, but, you know, it's up to us as a lender's solicitor in that scenario to work with the borrower's solicitor. You know, it's not a, an adversarial uh, scenario. Obviously, we're working with them. It's just that our client in that scenario, being the lender, you know, requires um, quite a lot of rigorous legal due diligence often. Um, and, you know, it's for us to work together with the borrower's solicitor, really, um, to make that clear. Um, and we're ultimately, we're trying to achieve the same objective. So that's important as well. So there's a role to be played by, by, by both solicitors in that scenario. Oh, yeah, I appreciate that. And I think we'll wrap it up there for now. Obviously, we've gone through around about 10 questions or so. Uh, we did have more come in, um, but I think we'll have to get to that another time. If you've got any questions that you want to ask Ed, um, leave them in the, the comments below. Um, we'll gather those up once we've got enough, and then we can maybe do another session in a couple of months' time uh, to run through that. So as always, thanks so much for your time, Ed. Really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll get you back in the not too distant future. Thanks, David. It's been a pleasure and uh, yeah, look forward to catching up soon. And I'd welcome uh, a further, a further interview.